beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last Tuesday was International Women's Day, celebrated each year to commemorate the cultural, political, and socioeconomic achievements of women. One of the main purposes of such a day is to promote gender equality. Usually a movement such as this one arises from a situation where a certain group has been marginalized in society. Back when International Women's Day was first established more than a century ago, women did not even have the right to vote in most Western democracies. Since that time, our society has done much to promote gender equality. Our text contains the story of the five daughters of Zelophehad approaching Moses and asking for their share of land when Israel entered Canaan. Many would like to see the daughters of Zelophehad as early women's rights advocates, but that's actually a distortion of what our text teaches. They are simply women of faith who want to carry on their father's name and lineage since they believe that God will allow them to inherit the promised land. Their faith response is to ask to share in God's blessings. Our text also details the upcoming death of Moses, who had led Israel out of Egypt to the borders of Canaan. Because of his sin of not honoring God when providing the Israelites with water from the rock, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Yet the Lord in his mercy grants Moses the opportunity to go to a high mountain and to view the land. Knowing that he would soon die, Moses asked the Lord to appoint a leader in his place. Our text details how he was to appoint Joshua to serve as leader over Israel. Now you might ask, what do these two parts of our text have in common? Is there any relation between the daughters of Zelophehad asking for a tribal inheritance and the death of Moses and the appointment of Joshua as a new leader? To put the question in a different way, what is Numbers 27 really all about? Well, it's all about the land of Canaan. It's about the fact that Israel is about to receive Canaan as their promised inheritance. About 400 years earlier, the Lord had promised Abraham that his descendants would take possession of the land. Now Israel was about to receive it as a gift from God. You might say, so what? What's that got to do with me? Well, good question. The point is that just as the Lord made promises to Abraham, so he's also made promises to us. We read this morning from 1 Peter 1, which speaks of how God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What is this hope promised to us? Peter speaks about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 
In Christ, God has promised to allow us to share in a glorious inheritance. Just like the Israelites, we may look forward to a renewed and blessed life with God in our promised land. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. The Lord prepares his people for the conquest of Canaan as their promised inheritance. We'll see that God ensures that all of Israel will receive a share of the land and that God appoints a new leader to lead them into their inheritance. In the second census recorded in Numbers 26, there's a brief mention made of a man of the tribe of Manasseh named Zelophehad. Numbers 26.33 says, Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, had no sons but daughters. And the names of the daughters of Zelophehad were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. No other details are given. But our text elaborates on the situation in Zelophehad's family. It says that these daughters of Zelophehad drew near to make a special request. They came and stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. We know from Numbers 11 that Moses had appointed 70 of the elders of Israel and appointed them to serve as judges over the people. These men served as judges among the people with the result that only the most difficult cases were presented to Moses. It's possible, even likely, that this situation had been brought up with these judges, but that they didn't know how to deal with it. So the daughters of Zelophehad had brought their request before Moses and the entire congregation. They explained that their father had died in the wilderness. He was not in the company of those who rebelled with Korah, but died for his own sin. Perhaps he was guilty of participating on one of the other occasions when the people grumbled and complained against the Lord. Perhaps he was just part of the company of those 20 years old or more who did not have faith to take possession of the promised land when the ten spies came with their bad report. Whatever the case may be, he had died. And more to the point, he had died without sons. According to the Lord's decree, the land was to be apportioned to the Israelites according to their tribes and families. Numbers 26.53 says it was to be divided for inheritance according to the number of names mentioned in the second census. The problem was that the second census counted the people according to the names of the men, 20 years old and upward, all those who were able to go to war. Since only the men were counted in the census, Zelophehad's daughters would be left without an inheritance. And so they ask, why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. The basic point is that their dad and his family have a rightful place in the land. But according to the decree of the Lord, their family will be left out 
They didn't think that was fair. And so they were willing to be brave enough to appear before the whole congregation to present their case before Moses and Eliezer the priest at the tent of meeting. Now you can imagine that their case would not have been well received by all of the Israelites. You need to understand that in those days, women did not normally own real estate. Society was structured around the family unit. And the families were led by men. Thus, in the planned distribution of the land, a census was taken of the men who were of age. It was assumed that by distributing the land in this way, everyone would receive their fair share of the promised inheritance. Yet, as our text shows, there are always exceptions to the rule. Moses did not decide on this case himself. Our text says that he brought their case before the Lord. We know from earlier numbers that Moses often went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord. Our text does not specify how Moses approached God in this case, but that's likely what happened. The Lord responded by judging their case favorably. He said, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. Yet the Lord does more than that. He takes the case of the daughters of Zelophehad and he makes a general rule about how inheritances are to be passed on in a situation where a man has no son. The general rule is that if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. The Lord goes on to specify how a man's inheritance is to be passed on if he has no son or daughter. In such a case, it's to be passed on to his brothers. If he has no brothers, it's to be passed on to his father's brothers. If his father has no brothers, it's to be passed on to his nearest kinsmen. Thus the Lord gives his people a statute and rule. But how a man's inheritance was to be passed on if he died without children. So what's the big deal, you ask? Why did the daughters of Zelophehad approach Moses to ask for their own family inheritance in Israel? Normally what would happen is that if they got married, they would have had a share in the inheritance of their husband. So why was this special legislation necessary? Were the daughters of Zelophehad the first women's rights advocates? Were they just concerned about their own rights to an inheritance in the land? What are we to make of this account? And how does it relate in our circumstances today? What our text makes clear is that the land of Canaan was of supreme importance to the Israelites. It was important, for the Lord had promised them the land as their inheritance. He had promised that hundreds of years earlier when their forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived there as strangers and sojourners. The receipt of the land would be the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to his people. But there's more involved. Please remember, beloved, that the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt in a foreign land 
for almost 400 years. For the past 40 years, they had wandered through an inhospitable desert, living in a dry and dusty land, scrounging for water, scraping to get by, inheriting the land of Canaan, was a fulfillment of their fondest dreams and desires. They eagerly longed for the time when each family would have their own place to settle. When instead of living in tents, they could settle into their own homes. They were looking forward to having abundant water from their own wells and cisterns. They craved having pastures for their flocks and herds to graze on and having land upon which to plant wheat and barley. They wanted to grow their own vegetables and fruit. The dream of every Israelite was to be able to settle in his own home, with his own vine and fig tree and pomegranate and olive trees. They were looking forward to the good life God had promised them to living in peace and security and rest. Really what it comes down to is that the Israelites wanted to share in the promises of God. And that's a good thing. We want that too, don't we? What do you do, beloved, when there are things you desire? Things God has promised you? Wouldn't we do exactly what the daughters of Zelophehad did? Wouldn't we approach God and ask him to give us what he has promised? God encouraged us to do exactly that. He encouraged us to call on him to plead on his promises In Psalm 50, the Lord instructed his people, Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. We, beloved, have been given such great promises. Think about the promises made to you at your baptism. God the Father has promised to adopt you as his child, to care for your needs, to even turn the adversity you face in life to your benefit. Jesus Christ has promised to wash away all your sins. The Holy Spirit has assured you that he will dwell in you, that he will renew your life. Our inheritance is that we belong to God, that he has promised to surround us with his grace and power. Despite the trials and hardships of life, God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. Yet do we, like the daughters of Zelophehad, pray for God's work in our life? Do we ask God to uphold us and strengthen us, when we're fearful and afraid? 
Do we trust that God will deliver us when faced with temptations to sin? Do you truly believe God will care for you materially, emotionally, and spiritually, even when it seems like he's not? What we need to understand, beloved, is that the daughters of Zelophehad were not women's rights crusaders. They were simply women of faith. The Lord, their covenant God, had made great promises to them about inheriting the promised land. At that time, the land was still inhabited by seven Canaanite nations, larger and stronger than the Israelites. But these women believed the promises of God. And so they asked for their rightful share of the land. Joshua 17 details how when the Israelites conquered the land, these women approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun, claiming the land the Lord had promised to them. Because of their faith, they were allowed to share in the promised inheritance. That's the lesson for us too, beloved. Sharing in God's promises does not require heroic actions on our part. It simply requires faith. Faith is believing what we do not see with our physical eyes. It's trusting God to do what he has said, even when that doesn't seem likely. Faith requires us to turn away from ourselves and our own resources, to believe in the power and the love and the faithfulness of our God. Our faith finds expression in our prayers. It finds expression in a living hope inside us that God will indeed provide us with rest and peace in Him. Are you entrusting your life and your well-being to God? Do you expect all good things from Him alone? Brings us to our second point. You know, we'll see how God appoints a new leader to lead them into their inheritance. By the time Israel was camped at the fords of the Jordan across from Jericho, Moses was 120 years old. It was time for a transition to a new leader who could lead the armies of Israel in the conquest of the promised land. And so in our text, the Lord plans for a transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua. First, the Lord rewards his servant Moses for his faithful leadership. It is true that Moses had not honored God when striking the rock to bring forth water instead of speaking to it. Yet Moses had served faithfully as mediator between the Lord and his people for 40 years. They were not easy years. The Israelites constantly grumbled and complained. And Moses had interceded for them when necessary. For many years he had served as God's spokesman to his people. And thus the Lord tells him to go up on a high mountain to see the land the Lord had given to the people of Israel. No, Moses would not be allowed to experience the blessings of living in rest and peace 
in the promised land. But he was allowed to see it from afar. Deuteronomy 34 recounts how the Lord gave him miraculous sight to be able to see the entire land and so experience a foretaste of the joy God promised to his people. Moses responds to the Lord's word by asking the Lord to appoint a successor. He said that the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. Moses does not want God's people to be as sheep who have no shepherd. His earnest desire is the well-being of God's people Israel. He asked God to appoint a man to lead the people into the promised land. The Lord responds by commanding Moses to take Joshua, the son of Nun, and make him stand publicly in the sight of all Israel. And then Moses conducted an official ordination service. Before all Israel, Joshua was commissioned as leader of God's people. As part of the ceremony, Moses laid his hands on Joshua. The laying on of hands indicates both a calling to office and an equipping for office. Our text makes this clear. We know that Joshua had served as Moses' helper for almost 40 years. He was also one of the two remaining spies who had brought a good report and encouraged Israel to trust in the Lord to give them the land. The fact that Joshua is suitable to serve as leader is clear from the fact that God says he is a man in whom is the Spirit. The Lord commands Moses to give Joshua some of his authority. Through the laying on of hands, he passes on the leadership mantle to Joshua so the people of Israel would follow and obey him. Now, obviously, Joshua was not a substitute for Moses. With Moses, the Lord spoke face to face. That will not continue with Joshua. Instead, if Joshua wants to seek direction or guidance from the Lord, you're going to have to do so through the mediation of the priest. Our text specifies how Joshua is to come before Eliezer the priest and ask for direction through the Urim and Thummim. It was a special means of revelation associated with the breastplate of the high priest. Joshua could seek direction about whether to go out or come in. The Lord promised to give this guidance through the high priest. Yet for the regular governance of Israel, Joshua did not need to seek special guidance from God. The Lord had made known his will to his people Israel in the law of Moses. By the time of Moses' death, the people would have all God's wondrous works and all his statutes and commandments recorded in the five books of Moses. There the Lord provided his people with all they needed to live in covenant fellowship with him. The law instructed them how to live thankful lives for God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. In the land he was given them as their inheritance. Again, we see a clear application of God's word to our circumstances today. 
There are some people who are always looking for special signs or portents from God to provide them with guidance or direction in their lives. But that's not necessary. God has provided us with all we need to know for how to live our lives in His Holy Word. The Bible contains God's complete revelation of all His mighty deeds. For us, it details a much greater delivery from slavery than Israel experienced. Through Moses, God delivered His people from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves, was commissioned to lead the Israelites into the promised land of Canaan. Yet God has provided us with a much greater salvation. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Joshua's name, meaning Savior. Through Jesus Christ, God has set us free from our sins and from the slavery of Satan. He has allowed us to share in all his spiritual blessings. Adoption as God's children, redemption from our sins, the gift of the Spirit, the renewal of our lives, union with Christ, and the promise of the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting. All these wonderful blessings are promised to us. God gives them to us, free of charge. There's only one thing required of us, to receive these wondrous gifts in faith, and so make them our own. You see, beloved, the daughters of Zelophehad had claimed God's blessings as their own, by faith. They believed that God was going to give them the land, And so they requested their share of it. The people of Israel received a new leader, Joshua, to lead them in the conquest of the land. But they had not yet received it. To do so, they would need to step forward in faith, going into battle against Jericho and later against many other kings and cities. It was only by faith, that they could claim their inheritance. God has promised us a wondrous inheritance too. We read of it in 1 Peter 1. Peter sings a song of praise to God for the blessings he's given us in Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter goes on to speak about how in this life we're grieved by various trials. He explains how God uses the trials of life to test the genuineness of our faith. Think of the struggles and hardships that faced the Israelites in the wilderness. There were times when they had no water to drink or food to eat. There were times when strong armies came to make war against them. They faced the grind of living in a dry and dusty land for 40 years. 
They face times of hopelessness and despair. We can relate to that, can't we? We've gone through a period of two years of COVID-19 with all the public health restrictions and the divisions caused by this in our families and churches. We're living in a time when inflation is ramping up, when it's a struggle for many to put food on the table and gas in the car. We see loved ones go through hard times and at times struggle with or even stray from the faith. We're faced with a lot of uncertainty in this world, with Russia invading Ukraine and with more overt attacks against the Christian fabric of Canadian society. It's hard not to become anxious, to get weighed down by all the struggles facing us. But beloved, do you believe that the Lord is with us? Do you trust his promises? He will never leave you or forsake you. Do you trust in his fatherly care and provision in your life? Do you pray to God laying your needs before the throne of grace? And beloved, when all the struggles of this life get on top of you, do you remember that this life is not all there is? Do the sorrows and struggles of this life make you long for entrance into your promised land? Do they make you look forward to sharing in the heavenly inheritance God has promised us? God has this great future in store for us. He has promised us joy and glory on new heavens and a new earth. A time when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. A time of peace that surpasses all understanding. Of joy so great we cannot even imagine it. Do you long for that time? Do you wait for it with eager expectation as the Israelites long to receive their inheritance? Can you see, beloved, that there's much more to life than just the here and the now? Are you living your life from the perspective of eternity? Next week, the Lord willing, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. It's a feast at which we remember Christ's redeeming work on our behalf. How he offered up his body and blood on the cross for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. But it's more than that. At the Lord's Supper, we rejoice in the communion that we have with our Savior and with each other. It's an expression of the unity we may enjoy. The Lord's Supper is also a foretaste of what is to come. It points forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb, to celebrating the supper with the Lord and all his people in eternity. It causes us to look forward to our heavenly inheritance, to the joy and glory God has promised to all those who love him. 
May we celebrate in faith and thus share in all God's blessings now and forevermore. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing together from Psalm 16, stanzas 1, 3, and 5.